I don't know, I kind of joke that I'm the Hagrid of the plant world. I'm like, ooh, it's got spines. Ooh, it's poisonous, you know? And I'm, and I'm just like, oh, it's just doing its thing. Isn't that cool, though? <laughs> Welcome to Seeds and Their People. I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and by our listeners like you for as little as $1 a month. Thank you so much to our newest members, Debbie, Andrea, and Liz. Find us at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. This episode is for the science nerds like me. While we were back in my hometown of Romantic Willimantic in northeastern Connecticut for Christmas, I snuck away to visit Brian Connolly at the farmer's market and then in his greenhouse at Eastern Connecticut State University, where this interview takes place. Here's his bio from Eastern. Dr. Connolly is a botanist and horticulturalist. His research interests include rare plants of New England, the nightshade family, the rose family, and cannabis. Before Eastern, Brian Connolly was a faculty member at Framingham State University in Massachusetts and also worked for the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife. As you will hear in the interview, we've known each other for a couple of decades, but this past year, we took our seed nerdery to a new level after he invited me to come speak to his students. I sent him seeds for gondules or pigeon peas for part of his trial of northern adapted varieties. Sent him chimbong, sour leaf, a type of roselle from Burma to attempt saving the seeds of this very long season variety in his greenhouse as he's worked to adapt and breed other long season crops and also shared some of our various field peas or cow peas for his trials and breeding work. We will visit all of those plants and many more, including wild plants such as a spiny nightshade that has disappeared from the wild in Puerto Rico. This is a departure from our other episodes in that we don't focus much on his own cultural crops, though he does talk a bit about Taiwanese crops he's hoping to explore more. I'm excited about this direction, however, because it gets into some of the science that is involved in seed keeping sometimes, including discussions of intentionally hybridizing different varieties, stabilizing so-called off-types, crossing plants with different numbers of chromosomes, and relatedly how seedless watermelons work, selecting for disease resistance, returning endangered plants to the wild, and so on. Also, you may notice Chris is not introducing this episode with me. He's doing great. He's downstairs riding out the end of his winter relaxation period and savoring the last few days before he heads back to his farm. He'll be back on the podcast soon. I am here with our cat, and he's... here he is. Yeah, that's him pawing the microphone. Okay, here we go. Transporting you to the ECSU Biology Department with Brian Connolly. 
So I'm here with Brian Connolly, longtime friend from my hometown area. Can you tell us where we are right now? Oh, uh, we're in the Eastern Connecticut State University Biology Greenhouse. <laughs> and why are we here? Um, we're here to talk about plants. <laughs> <laughs> why are you here, usually? Oh, um, well, I'm, I maintain the research collection here, and I work with students in the greenhouse, and so I maintain plant material for the botany classes uh, here on campus, and then um, I do all sorts of different types of research, and I have some rare plants in here that I conserve. Do you remember how we first met? Well, I mean, we first met, I guess, when uh, you were the chicken man of New York, right? I was trying to be. Yeah. And um, but I mean, I've known your your mother um, since I was a staff member at the the Willimantic Food Co-op. Um, that was probably two. Yeah, year 2000 or before. So yeah. And then then the first time like we really interacted uh, at any length was um, chicken butchering. And so we were butchering chickens and I was showing Owen how to, you know, cut throats and pluck and gut and and um, yep that that was the day <laughs> yep. yeah I was trying to become the chicken intern or the chicken man <laughs> of New York City and I had zero experience besides gathering eggs and so my mom was like I know somebody and so I thought I would just come and like you point out some things but you're like okay we're butchering today come on down and it was really <laughs> intense for me and I actually didn't eat chicken for about a year after that oh no oh no I didn't know that oh geez uh -oh. anyway yeah, I really yeah. appreciate it and it's an experience that stuck with me probably it will for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah yeah it is it's very intense I, I don't do it that much anymore but I was doing it up until probably four years ago well I'm glad to have the experience because I do eat chicken and you know you might as well know what goes into it you know someone yeah. someone's doing that yeah yeah and it is interesting and you get to definitely get um like a, a view into bird anatomy and chicken anatomy and and the, the like and I remember you being impressed by the colors like uh, when we had the, you know, the, the gizzards and the intestines and the hearts all in a bucket, you're like, oh, they're actually kind of pretty. They're, you know, like they're, kind of, they're still vibrant. Like the gizzards are almost like iridescent. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the gut bucket. The gut bucket. And yeah. I remember you were going to bring it out to the woods or something for the wildlife. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, the coyotes definitely. And the skunks and the fishers all kind of benefited from our, our chicken operation. Yep. And it turns out I benefited from the chicken operation also. I became the chicken intern of Just Food and Heifer International, and then ended up staying on at Just Food for six and a half, seven years after that. First as a livestock coordinator, building chicken coops, writing a city chicken guide, a book, and then doing a bunch of other stuff with community gardens and urban farms in New York. So thanks for that foot in the door, Brian. And now moving on to other topics away from guts and towards plants. I, I would love to get a sense of your journey because I, I actually first was aware of you besides meeting you with Ron the Chickens. I had your seed saving book that you wrote with Rowan White, who's one of my favorite seed savers oh, out there. Great. And I know you even had done some work with Stephen McCumber, one of her elders oh, and someone yeah. who I admire very much. Yeah, yeah. So maybe just to give folks a, a sense of where you've been and, and okay. And how you got into this work. Yeah. Well, I guess I've been seed saving for about 33 years in one way or another. I started as a, 
uh, teenager. And actually, I uh, had a gourd that I had just taken from like an ornamental gourd mix when I was a teenager, and I grew it, and I saw it had a female flower. I um, knew it wasn't going to set fruit because it was a lone female flower. And so I was like house sitting at somebody's house and they had a pumpkin patch. And I remember taking the pollen from a male and using a Q-tip, which you don't need to use a Q-tip, but and, and transferring it. And so that was like my first cross ever. I was like, you know, 16 or maybe I was 17. But but I had uh, read about seed saving actually in my ecology textbook in high school. They had a little blurb in it about seed savers exchange and for many many years I was a member like uh, 15 years and I, I'd offer up to 100 different things um, mostly tomatoes but um, yeah so I mean I started growing gardens and things with my my parents or just on my own in Vermont um, you know very you know probably five six seven eight years old just regular gardening and then started seed saving teenage years um, then I went to the University of Vermont and um, worked in the Slade Garden. We had this environmental garden and the uh, Common Ground Student Farm. And I was like ordering things from Native Seed Search and Sandhill Preservation back in the late 90s. And, and I actually had some early exchanges with Tom Stearns for high mowing. Um, I think Peace Vine that he offers in his catalog might've come from me in like 1995. But yeah, his he's just, done amazing things. Um, but yeah, and then I was a double major in anthropology and botany. And part of the anthropology curriculum, I was in the anthropology club and um, we'd go up to Kanawake, which is, uh, you know, a Haudenosaunee reservation on um, south of Montreal. And we went to this longhouse and I had already some familiarity with um, seed saving. And I see these corn braids on the wall and I say, holy crap, these are like traditional, you know, Mohawk, or I would have said Iroquois back then, but, you know, uh, Haudenosaunee seeds. And uh, Steve gave me two ears because I was interested, and I asked if I could pay him something, and he said a quarter. And so I gave him a quarter <laughs> for two two uh, ears of what's, um, I think, being called Six Nations Blue right now. And I, I have some of that. and And then... I can't remember, just maybe through NOFA, I, I met Rowan and when she was a student at Hampshire and she was doing the seed saving at the Hampshire farm there. Yeah, and I, I wrote the seed saving handbook for the, the NOFA nor, uh, the, a while ago, that's 2004 or something. And then, uh, then Rowan um, was doing this project and, then, uh, and she was in the middle of having kids. And uh, so I just kind of did a, an assist at the end to get, to help uh, uh, get the book into the world. I did grow commercially for Baker Creek for a while, and um, for um, I think uh, even Southern Exposure Seed Exchange uh, might have offered some of my. You know, I, I grew and Fedco, and so uh, you know, I don't know if you know Rob Miller, F Full Moon Farm. And um, in Hampton, he let me use his land, and um, I actually grew some really big grow-outs of winter luxury pie, and I think that was um, a, a big push to get it back into the commercial world. It was almost um, 
commercially extinct. And then I think me growing, I don't know, I grew like 50 pounds of pumpkin seed one year or something insane like that. Um, North Georgia candy roaster, I grew a whole bunch of and got that kind of into the world too. And so I think these varieties may never have kind of gotten the commercial bulk unless I did that back back in the day. Um, but, I, but I was hired to do it and, you know, I had a contract and I sold. Um, yeah, and then my other part of my life, which is kind of more my traditional professional part, is that um, I've been a botanist and I was a Massachusetts um, state botanist for six years working with endangered plants. There is a, an endangered uh, seed bank through um, the Native Plant Trust in Framingham, Mass, uh, which I've collected some for them, but uh, not very much. They have this whole extensive seed bank. But I've um, also grown native plants for Zoo New England, and they've gone out and for restoration projects. So um, New England Blazing Star. Um, and then this year I did purple milkweed, um, Asclepius uh, purpurescens for the Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife, their natural heritage program. I've done some Asclepius implexicali, um, uh, I think it's called blunt-lobed uh, milkweed, and uh, for um, Camp Edwards, which is a military base on Cape Cod. So yeah, so I've grown several different rare plants that are native to uh, New England as well. I've mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know if I'd call it seed saving, but uh, head starting maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. We're chatting about um, one thing that I haven't really embraced is, um, you know, my Taiwanese um, heritage and growing plants from Taiwan. I've been pretty much a New England kid, but but my um, my dad was in the military during the Vietnam era and my mom worked on base and my sister was born in Taiwan and I was born in Massachusetts. And, uh, but it'd be really cool to kind of um, unite some of, uh, you know, um, my Taiwanese heritage with um, the, all the seed stuff I, I do. They've sort of been in very different places in my, in my mind for uh, most of my life. So, yeah. How will you approach that? Well, I guess I have to find some Taiwanese varieties. I guess there's a, um, uh, a kinopodium uh, that's um, grown in Taiwan, um, like a, uh, like a quinoa kind of thing, and then um, there's you know the the sword lettuce we mentioned and was a ping tung long eggplant. So maybe I'll try growing some of those and mm-hmm. and if uh, True Love ever wants to offer them, you know I could I could uh, try to supply you guys and uh, that'd be a lot of fun. So yeah, that would be an honor. I would, we would love that. And you know that's our focus. So I, I love that you're thinking about your kind of ancestral seeds. Um, I know you know after all these decades of this work, um, it's cool. It's cool to hear that you're you're thinking of doing that. Besides that kind of online research, are there any other ways you might kind of look into? Are there people you could talk to um, about these potential seeds? Yeah, I mean, first I'll try my mom. Her brothers still live in Taiwan. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I get there's um, not too many. There's a few Taiwanese people around. Um, but yeah, I guess I could uh, start seeing if anybody knows of anything. One one thing I w- would love to grow is um, the grass jelly plant. We would come down from Vermont to Boston and buy these cans. And I haven't figured out which plant it is exactly. There seems to be a couple things that are called grass jelly plant. But that was such a, like a funny little treat. I mean, it's kind of it's good stuff, but it's not. The Western palate's a little weird, you know. Um, so you cut it up in cubes from the the can, and you um, 
put it on sugar and ice, and then you eat it. And, uh, and I'd like, love to figure out what exactly the grass jelly plant is and try to grow it. Yes, actually, a few episodes ago, I interviewed some Indonesian friends in Philly who are growing it. Oh, okay. So I will ask them okay. if I can bring you some. And maybe there's multiple kinds, but I'll, I'll see at least if you can try theirs. Okay. I did get something that called the grass jelly plant at Loji's greenhouse. It's actually in the, that greenhouse there. But, but I looked it up, and I don't think it's quite the right plant. It, it said it was used to, like, thicken soups. And so I have to figure out if, and yeah, I guess it has a lot of pectin in it and then then I'll make a, a jelly. Let's thicken the soup of this episode with a little walk around the greenhouse, which, by the way, is quite noisy with creaking vents. I've been to your greenhouse before, and there's so much to see here. I'd love to see your favorite things. Okay. Well, um, they don't look great right now, but um, I have two different nightshades. Um, well, this one is uh, Erubia. So this is an endemic from the island of Puerto Rico. It's a federally endangered species. Um, it may be extinct in the wild. And I've been working with people on Puerto Rico and in the United States to increase it. And um, hopefully um, I'll be able to reintroduce it to the wild. Um, kind of from a human standpoint, it's just kind of this gnarly, spiny thing. It doesn't really have any cultural uses, but um, I don't know. I kind of joke that I'm the Hagrid of the plant world. I'm like, ooh, it's got spines. Ooh, it's poisonous, you know? And, um, and I'm just like, oh, it's just doing its thing. Isn't that cool, though? So this is uh, very rare, and um, I hope to bring it um, uh, back out into the wild with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And uh, um, I'm, my Spanish accent's horrible, but Para la Naturaleza, PLN, is another group I work with down there. And, um, and George Lacasio at um, Mount Wachusett's Community College and, and many others. All right, it's a very big team effort. Spiny is definitely the most like prominent attribute. It's like, covered with spines. It's yeah. maybe a five foot tall plant and every inch of it, every centimeter of it has a spine. And then at the top, it's like clearly a solanum, right? It, yeah. The flowers yeah. Looks so familiar, like another solanum I've seen before, and I can't yeah. quite place it. Well, probably the closest that you've seen is potato, even. Right. And it's a little, it's kind of like the skinny version of potato. Mm -hmm. Or or if you were to take those white petals and make them yellow, it'd look pretty much like a tomato. And it's got these long, like, skinny leaves that also have spines on them. Yeah. And what's interesting is they have them off of the midrib on both sides. And that's kind of a weird, unusual trait yeah. that you don't see. Yeah. But, yeah. Say the name one more time. It's uh, Erubia or Solanum encephalium. It's also known as Solanum drymophilum. It's an old, old scientific name for it. Pardon the background noise of my, my vents moving around. I think it was cleared because of uh, the spines, because the area was used for pasture. And so, yeah. It's probably never never a terribly common plant, but it's just a few places in the kind of higher elevation of uh, Puerto Rico. The first thing was um, I had two clones. I had requested seed from a Fairchild Fair Tropical Botanical Garden in uh, Miami. And um, my two clones that I had left, they wouldn't cross-pollinate with each other. So eventually I found somebody with a clone in, at University of Utah, Lynn Bowes, and Dr. Bowes sent me, sent me uh, some cuttings. And then from there, I was able to reproduce it for about 
I don't know, five or ten years, I couldn't get it to make seed. So once I, I had seed, um, I've been able to grow seedlings. Also, there's this doesn't have rhizomes or any way to spread vegetatively. So the, if it doesn't reproduce by seed, it's just stuck. And so you just have these individual shrubs and, and you know, like the birds or animals couldn't spread the seeds. So if you reintroduce these clones into the wild that didn't reproduce, they would just kind of be this dead end. So it could still be out there, but um, there are two populations that have been collected from on Puerto Rico and, and they're both no longer seem to be alive in the wild. They're both in, in being grown in gardens and botanic gardens. And, yeah. So getting it back into the wild, what, what is that going to take given that even though you love the spikes, most people don't want the spikes? It will go back on conservation land. And, and there are other solanums that are spiny down there too. It says uh, in lots of things with spines and dense vegetation. So it will blend right in with a lot of things in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and then it will go on, um, you know, land trust land uh, that's been set aside for conservation. So... So they, they know what they're in for. <laughs> Another plant project is the um, Amorphophallus titanum. So this is the corpse flower. And so this is the largest inflorescence in the world, uh, unbranched. That's the, but um, so it's from Indonesia. And then it takes seven years to flower. And then it will flower every three years, but it has this horrendous smell. It feels like your eyes are burning when you come in here uh, for about three hours. It's like moderately endangered, and I've actually sent the leaves um, to be registered in kind of like a stud book, so they know whose plants are related to whose. So they're they're self incompatible. So when they flower, people like airship pollen um, from different botanical gardens and things to each other, and uh, and so they can uh, propagate it from seed. But the, these guys have never set seed, and uh, they've been here for um, I I think uh, Dr. Koning uh, had them here in the late 90s. So. So uh, yeah, that's another weird connection. He was my advisor on a high school science fair project. So it's cool to be in his greenhouses again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a really funny small world story. So the small world story in a nutshell is that when I was a sophomore in high school, this is 1997, Wyndham High School, my friend Kristen Johnson and I worked with our biology teacher, Miss Antonella Bona, and also a Yukon professor to conduct and submit a study of Siberian hamsters and their circadian rhythms, meaning their daily cycles of sleep and activity. And it measured that by the time spent running on hamster wheels under different lighting conditions, simulating different day lengths. And we submitted it to the Connecticut State Science Fair and we won in our division, uh, which was the team's division in biology. So the next year we did it again, but that year we worked with Dr. Ross Koning, who we just mentioned, who was, you know, at the ECSU greenhouse biology department. And later, coincidentally, also my mom's neighbor, it's a small town. Uh, and we did the same study about circadian rhythms under different lighting conditions, but the subjects were bean plants, Phaseolus vulgaris. And this was in the Eastern greenhouse. Uh, and we used very lightweight wires that acted as a gauge and were connected to, you know, a computer that was monitoring their movement. You know, beans, they raise and lower their leaves depending on sunlight. And so we won again. And 
if I'm remembering correctly, their innate day lengths for both the hamsters and the beans were definitely more than 24 hours, maybe closer to 25 hours. And I think our conclusion or our hypothesis was that they kind of got in sync or in tune with the sunlight, the actual day length, um, and would go to 24 hours, but had the capacity to have a longer day length. Okay, but that's 27 years ago or so, and I haven't looked at the study since then, so I'm just kind of having a fuzzy memory about it. Okay, back to Brian and his tomato projects. We're doing several uh, different tomato hybridization projects um, with the students, and we'll go over here. I've got some seedlings that I started. I don't know, this is a, a green zebra, Matt's wild hybrid. Um, I've got a garden peach brandywine hybrid here. Uh, this is a three-way hybrid between um, sun gold, a current tomato, and uh, pink fuzzy boar. This is a garden peach by Cherokee purple. I really like hand pollinating stuff, so um, if you want any two tomatoes crossed, uh, I, I, it's, I'm, I love doing it. I love the emasculate, you know, pulling off the anthers and tapping the pollen out. And uh, my student, Natasha uh, Durand, who's uh, from San Juan, Puerto Rico, um, loves to do that too. And so. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'll, yeah. I'll put some thought into that. You also have a farm with your family with a CSA. And I'm curious if any of your tomato hybridization projects have made it onto the farm in a real way. Um, yes, uh, there's one, we call it limelight, and uh, I, I don't even remember where, it's a green tiger cross, I think, I'm trying to remember what I did, um, but we, we grow that, um, and then um, I think that's about the only one, occasionally we'll grow what I what I call brandy rose, um, which is uh, uh, from Rose de Burn and Brandywine that I stabilize, but to be honest, um, Eva Purple Ball out produces it, so we... And, and it's a little earlier. So Evo Purple Ball, we kind of stick with. How did you know Limelight would make it to kind of a commercial scale for you? Um, really, it was selected by my daughter. And so she, she, she liked the flavor of them. Um, they split a little. So it's a little not perfect, but it's got um, kind of this very balanced taste. And um, it's kind of a kind of like a grape tomato but bigger it's like a little crunchy and um and so she really liked them and so we've kind of really kept them going uh for for cordelia but for me too i like them a lot but then um so we have we have some at the you know end of our kind of like cherry tomato row every year and then they they sometimes end up in the boxes that go to market and things like that what other futures have your tomato hybrids found Commonwealth Seeds in Virginia. Um, I guess they're introducing um, something called Easter eggs in August. That originated from a Matt's Wild uh, Garden Peach Cross. And I guess they're keeping uh, kind of a uh, couple different colors. And so with the kind of fuzz, it makes like this neat, like pastel kind of muted color. So I think that will be in their catalog this year. Um, and then I, not, not too many have, have made it very far. I would love to, um, I don't know, someday have like, uh, I don't know, maybe my own, f uh, seed company called like Connolly's Creative Crosses or something. And where I just release, um, 
gene pools because I joke that I have plant breeder ADHD or something. Uh, maybe I do. I don't know. Um, it's very possible, but I never seem to bring them out to stability. I'll make a cross, grow the F1, maybe the F2, and get some cool things out of it, and then it just sits in an envelope for a decade. <laughs> and so, uh, so I would love to just kind of release these these gene pools into the world so people can develop their own things but i just sort of get bogged down once you, you start to get you know 10 different lines in the f3 and i'm trying to teach and raise kids and work in my wife's farm and do research and i just kind of end up not finishing the selection mm -hmm. so I'd, I'd love to get more of it out into the world and i think people would have fun with it but. That's, I think people would have fun with that. Yeah. It sounds like you're doing many types of selection uh, from flavor to size to earliness to productivity to does it split or not. What are some of the other ways that you kind of traits that you look for? Um, well, they're, they're not here right now, but um, uh, well, Matt's wild a little bit is blight resistance, especially late blight. Um, what was it 2009 or what was that year i can't remember not 2009 or 2011 it was like the tomato apocalypse uh, with the late blight in the northeast um and so i'm still a little like scarred from that um so matt's wild is supposed to have some late blight resistance um but i also have crosses with iron lady and defiant and um a few other known late blight resistant tomatoes that I've kind of crossed with green zebra and some other things. And again, I've never really gotten them that far out, but beyond the F2 or something. Um, part of that's because um, I don't want to test them because I don't want to have any late blight anywhere near our farm. Uh, and so I guess you could look for a genetic marker and I haven't really found like a cooperator to do that, but, um, but I could like make all these lines and send it to somewhere where light blight is a continual problem and then get the seeds back or something. Yeah, I heard that. I forget who at one of the seed conferences I had been to where they were talking about breeding for disease resistance, that there were places where they encouraged disease, like in yeah. breeding farms, yeah. so that they could select from the ones that were least yeah. affected. Yeah, yeah, Frank Morton. That is probably who I heard yes. it from. Yeah, he has his, what, half acre of hell, I think he calls it, where where he grows all his lettuces and, uh, and um, brings in every lettuce disease he can find or something, and then just, you know, uh, and then he just lets the the survivors, uh, you know, take over and they make the seed and they, uh, they are the ones he selects for. He's got some very nice lettuces. Yeah. 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 We, he's on one of our early episodes actually talking about his lettuces. Yeah. 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 Frank has some really interesting stuff going and, and he, some of his lines are polymorphic too, and you can, you can select some stuff out of it. And, and, uh, we've had some, uh, interesting off types pop out and we've kind of continued them a little bit on our farm too. So an off type, so generally a variety fits like a description, kind of like, um, I call it like a morphometric in, in agronomic space, you know, so you kind of have these limits, like, um, you know, it will be whatever, a red leaf lettuce, um, that's a, like a romaine type, it's about 65 days to maturity, something like that. And so if you get like a speckled green leaf type, out of your red leaf type that's that's an off type 
and and so and then you know some people are like oh you know i didn't want that and it can be a bad thing or you can say oh hey that's kind of cool and you can make it into your own variety mm -hmm. and so you can pull that out and select for it you, usually it will segregate meaning it will throw ancestral types or or new combinations out that weren't exactly the first plant that you that you identified. So usually you have to what's called stabilize it or make it true to type. So the seeds are the same from generation to generation. And it's important for some people. Some people don't care and and you can maintain a, a polymorphic line. Yep. Yeah. Nice. How long do you think it might take to stabilize an off type tomato or lettuce? Um, uh, the dogma is six generations, and if you have a greenhouse, that could be as short as two years for a shorter season type of thing. Let's take a quick break here to hear from some friends with another podcast you might like. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying this show, you may also like the No-Till Martyr Garden Podcast with co-hosts Mimi Castile, Natalie Lansbury, and yours truly, Alex Ball. We interview growers, researchers, and others in the sustainable ag community about everything from soil-first farming practices to farm business management in the wild world of soil biology and health. So head over to your favorite podcast platform today and subscribe to the No-Till Growers Network. Okay, back to the episode where we start checking out some of the crops that we've connected around in the last year, including field peas or cow peas or black-eyed peas. So um, I have your bow. This is mm -hmm. the edible leaf um, cow pea. From Kenya. From Kenya. But... Um, so I have um, Minnesota 13, which is like done. Um, and so that matured first. It was only like 64 days to mature seed. Not very productive, but oh my goodness, fast. And um, just really cute, the little Holstein or yin and yang kind of pattern. This I got from Giving Ground Seed in Montana. This is Centipede. Uh, it's supposed to be a Edwin Meter variety from New Hampshire. And uh, Meter was like this crazy plant breeder from University of New Hampshire. And one of his lines was actually a parent line to Minnesota 13. Um, and then I've got the Mississippi Purple Hull, also from you, and it hasn't even flowered yet. Um, and this is um, 80 days or something since I planted it. Um, and so 64 days, already mature seed, 80 days and not even flowered. So huge difference in maturation time. Yeah, I mean, Minnesota and Mississippi. They're, yeah, they're quite far apart. Yeah, it makes sense. And then um, one of these is New Hampshire Cream Number 2, which is another meter line. Um, Fast Lady, Lady from Carol Deppy. Um, and so those were um, uh, a little bit after. I, I, can, I have the I wrote the days down. And then this one is extra early cowpea. This is a USDA accession I got. And, um, and the one at the end is Peking black. It's a black um, uh, cowpea, supposedly from China. Um, so you can see we've, we run the gamut from very early to very late. Um, Bo is in the middle here. And so, yeah. I always feel like, well, I've just been growing that one for a couple of years, but it does mature relatively early compared to other ones that we grow. Yeah, yeah, it seems early compared to some of the deep, um, you know, southeast United States types. But yeah, but the Minnesota, and I ordered Minnesota uh, 150, the sister line to Minnesota 13 from a seed saver. So I want to check that out. It's instead of white and black, it's like white and like tannish or reddish. And so, but it has that 
that, that ca I guess they call it a calico. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious to see if that's just as early as 13. So now what? I did some hybridization, um, but it wasn't successful. I'll have to learn how to hand pollinate cowpeas. With every plant you do plant breeding with, it's always a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but it's not a bad system, but, um, uh, but I, I have to get it just right and uh, make sure this, the cross pollinations don't abort. That's what happened. They just didn't set. Um, what I'd love to do is um, usually the darker seeded types have higher antioxidants. I'm guessing it has a stronger kind of flavor, though. Um, I've never really had a black cowpea, so I guess I'll find out in a couple weeks. Uh, but I would I'd love to make a short season dark um, colored cowpea because I thought that would be good for antioxidants and, you know, for human health. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, and I, I don't know of any super early pure black cowpea. So. Yeah, the one we have is from Louisiana. Okay. So I don't know if that would if it's following these um, <laughs> trends with yeah. where they're grown. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that would help with earliness or hurt. Probably hurt. Yeah, yeah. And but the thing is, there's a, seems to be a basically an inverse relationship with production too. The earlier it is, I I I think it's a lot less productive. They're very small plants. You can see they're they're kind of bush, and like Mississippi purple hull is trying to stretch out here. Yeah. What's cool to see is that it seems like the bow um, from Kenya is the leafiest. It is. It's very leafy, yep, and it's got the healthiest looking leaves. So that's yeah. cool. It's like the healthiest plant in here for, yeah. of the of the black eyed peas, of the, the cow peas. And, and it all kind of makes sense looking at them like this, you know, seeing yeah. the earliness of the northern varieties, the lateness of the southern, the leafiness of the leaf one. Yeah, yeah it's cool when you, you line up things for trials and you get to compare them side by side. Yeah, it's really informative. Um, cool. Yeah, Let's cool. check out the, the pigeon peas, the yeah, gondules. Peas. Yeah. This is Georgia number one. And so what's interesting is it has these red banners. And so that's different. Um, so this is gond uh, pigeon pea or gondules. And so this was um, bred by uh, uh, an Indian professor from University of Georgia. Dr. Sharad Patak, I think. OK, cool. I, I'll have to put his name in my memory. So let's see. Would you like me to shut these down? Adds a little ambiance. Okay, a little bit of yeah, yeah, the wailing of the of yes. the of the vents. Um, yeah, so um, and the this just barely matured for me. Um, I had surgery this summer and I didn't plant them till June twelfth, um, and so but they did flower um, here in Connecticut. But um, so Georgia, I have the order if you're interested. So right now, these are all plants that flowered outside and I brought into the, the, the Eastern Connecticut State University greenhouse. So this was a little later than um, Georgia two. And so Georgia two had pure um, yellow flowers. And, um, and this was um, just about the same time as uh, True Love's uh, Northern Adapted. Mm -hmm which I have over, I think this is the Northern Adapted. Northern Adapted um, is a bit bigger, like like one, like Georgia one, um, but it was earlier like Georgia two. Mm -hmm. So um, so that was kind of cool. That's okay. a good combo, better yeah. than smaller and later. Yeah, 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 but I did get um, different types and I'll have to collect the seed, but this one is from Echo. Um, I don't remember the full name of it, but it's like a tropical, like in Florida, in Florida and they it seems like they're very um, humanitarian based. Mm -hmm. They had a bunch of other short day 
um, pigeon peas. And so this, this, one, this one actually flowered as well um, in Connecticut. Well, I've been I've been wanting to connect with Echo for a while because they have so many interesting plant projects going, including moringa. So if oh, you're cool. listening, Echo, <laughs> yeah, <moringa is> cool. <laughs> let's talk. Yeah, super nutritious uh, moringa. Uh, um, so this 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 made it, and then um, uh, Isabel, this is a new release, um, I think, from the University of Puerto Rico. And uh, it was a little a little polymorphic. Um, this was the early, I only planted two of each. I really did it in my old um, cannabis pots. And uh, so so I, I grow hemp. I have a commercial hemp license and um, for my, my classes. And um, I just threw the seeds in there. Um, and so, uh, so I, this was a USDA accession, but this was a recent release um, from uh, Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. interesting. It's got... Also, reddish banners. I actually didn't know that word before. Yes, uh, or standard. Uh, so, uh, banner wings and keel. Those are the parts of the legume flower. So, so you either call it a, a banner or a standard. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's got the striped pods like the others. Yes. Yeah. All of these have been striped, um, and the seeds are all kind of that tan. Um, oh, I do have one other. I don't. It won't make it outside in Connecticut. But Stephanie from a local baking company, Pandiosa. Uh, she's from Puerto Rico, and she brought me seeds from her grandmother's um, land, great grandmother's land in Puerto Rico, and uh, they're black seeded. And so I have a, a few few plants here. I can show you the black seeds in the head house as well. Yes, I got black seeded gandules from Edis Brown, who was on a previous episode from Puerto Rico also, and they were beautiful plants. They just never flowered or made fruit outside here yeah. in, in Philadelphia. But that's cool. You have a greenhouse to try it out. Yeah, yeah. And I could um, cross-pollinate these with uh, your, your northern adapted mm -hmm. and see if we can get a another, you know, a dark seeded northern adapted um, um, pigeon pea. That'd be cool. And I want to get you this other one, too. Okay. Um, well, first, our Northern Adapted Pigeon Pea is a mix of Georgia 1 and Georgia 2 from Dr. Patak. Um, and so when I first received it from East New York Farms in Brooklyn, who had gotten it from Cornell Cooperative Extension or Cornell University um, in Ithaca, they gave them to me separate and also mixed. And uh -huh. I think somehow I ended up growing them mixed. Yeah. But maybe that was for the best if they're bigger and you know, yeah, earlier yeah. than the later one and bigger than the small, the, yeah, the yeah, earlier one. This is, this is it. Oops. Yeah. Yep. This is a, this is it. Yep. Northern. Yep. Well, we've been offering it for years and people are just so happy to have it here, you know, especially Puerto Rican, Dominican, Indian, yes. parts of Africa, other parts of the Caribbean, um, anywhere tropical people, this is such an important part of the diet. Um, so it's so cool to, that you're trialing so many of them and maybe we'll get closer to finding the ones people want. And the one I want to give you, I found last year, I'll just say quickly on here that um, I found it at a Puerto Rican grocery store in Philly. It was a plant. I took a picture of the phone number of where they got it. They, When I called them after success, they sent me to the nursery in Jersey who grew it. And he told me on the phone he'd been growing it 50 years. He worked alongside Puerto Rican day laborers and has been growing it ever since. And that one is, I think, also pretty big and bushy. And the pods are are big and just green. So I'm excited to have a couple options for people cool. in this coming year. They'll probably be in the catalog within the next few weeks. Nice. nice. And I just want to say it's a very ornamental plant as well. I didn't realize how pretty the flowers were. 
And then um, the carpenter bees and bumblebees love them. So they're really kind of a pollinator plant as well. And I didn't realize that um, when I started. Oh, um, this, I, I forgot about this. Um, this is Solanum chacoense. And so this is actually a South American wild potato relative, um, but it showed up in Tennessee. And, um, and someone tagged me on iNaturalist. I don't know if you use iNaturalist at all, but it's this app and you can ID all the wild plants, animals, insects. And so I'm an I'm a addict. I have a problem with iNaturalist, uh, but I identify solanums. And uh, someone tagged me on this and I said, I don't know what this is. And then I actually had genetic testing done. It points to Chacoense pretty much. Uh, it seems like that's what it is. Um, but it's only the second or third location in North America where it's escaped. And, uh, and usually it escapes right near breeding programs because people use it for disease resistance and things like that. But um, so this is something that I, I want to write up and say, hey, I found this. I didn't actually find it. I, um, I had the, the, the identifier um, uh, send me plants from Tennessee and I, I rooted them here and I've had them here for two or three years. So yeah, they're like fine-leafed potatoes with a little purple stem, and they have these really long rhizomes, and they have these tiny little tubers, or maybe about the size of a dime or a nickel, and so they kind of run all over the place. That yeah, and so they'll cross with a potato and create a more disease-resistant offspring. Yeah, I think it's a long road. Um, uh, they're very bitter. They're very small. They have the long rhizomes. I believe this is a diploid, and potatoes are tetraploid. And so often triploid plants are mostly sterile, but sometimes you get a seed. So, so I think I don't think it's super easy. I think you have to do, you know, several generations of, of hybridization. And so, yeah. I was hoping this would come up because I know you you've done work with. Is this called ploidy? Ploidy, yeah. Can you yeah. tell us just for people who've never thought about this before what we're talking about? Um, well, it's basically um, multiple sets of um, chromosomes. So basically in plants, you get a complete re replication uh, or duplication within the same cell. So normally like you have two sets of chromosomes, but plants can have um, uh, four sets, six sets, anything that's even is fertile. So like um, strawberries are octoploid. Um, wheat is hexaploid. Wheat is a, a ancient hybrid of three different species. And so often, the more gene copies you have, the more resilient you are, the larger you are. And so a lot of our, a lot of our domesticated plants are polyploid. Um, so potatoes, wheat, strawberries. When you make a cross between um, two different even numbers and you get an odd number, you often get a sterile plant and that's where seedless watermelons come in. And so that's a cross between a diploid and a tetraploid watermelon line. And, but, and so they're triploid, but you need a pollinator. So, so often if you get like seedless watermelon seed packets, you have two different seed types in there, which will grow a triploid and usually a diploid. So the diploid needs to pollinate the triploid to actually set fruit. Mm -hmm. And so, but the triploids often have a little bit of fertility. And so then you can move that um, back into either the tetraploid or the diploid so, so that you can get traits moved, but it's not easy. And I, I worked on it with my chokeberries. Um, so my aronia, I don't know, it's an obscure berry crop, but that's what I did for my doctorate. Here we head over to see 
the roselle plants called chinbong, meaning sour leaf, in the Karen language from Burma. Hear much more about this plant in episode 7 with Philly-based Karen farmers Nado, Tidawen, and Serku, originally from the Karen state in Burma. They use this variety primarily for its sour leaf and also make jelly from its calyx. Many people around the world grow roselle primarily for their calyx to make a red drink often called sorrel, bisop, or agua de jamaica, or a tea that I grew up calling red zinger. So here's the seeds. Wow. Yeah. Does that fit with your, your knowledge of it? But I've never seen a calyx this yeah. color. I haven't, I, I, I don't know what's happening because I haven't seen it in this stage where they're like kind of modeled. Yeah. Red and white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So, so you know, I think we're getting close to mature seed. I didn't cross-pollinate it. It looked like it was set up to self, had a very narrow um, throat um, to the, you know, typical Malvasi flower with the monodelpha stamens, which, uh, you know, is this, this, the, the stamens are all in this tube and... The, you know, so uh, or the filaments are all in the tube, and then the anthers are, yeah, it's it's cool, cool setup. I only grew three plants, but I think there should be, you know, probably uh, I don't know, fifty to hundred seeds per capsule or something. So you know, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen times I don't know, fifty. So it should be a, you know, seven fifty seeds there and. We got three plants, so hopefully, I I, I don't know if you know, it'll be good for uh, for offering, but this will be, uh, you know, keep the line going at least. Yeah, that's what's cool about this, like budding relationship that we started this last year is just like how can a university program support this kind of community seed project that we're working on and. Yeah, this is a great example of just making sure we have regenerated seeds because this is a particularly hard one. We we actually have it grown. We asked some friends in Florida to grow it for us, and they hardly got seeds before their frost. Oh, wow. Um, and so we're still trying to figure out with this very long season roselle plant um, and how to make it available here so people don't have to kind of sneak seeds yeah. from, from overseas um, and have a, like a healthy, adapted you know, uh, population that we we kind of got to see grow and come to seed here. Yeah, yeah, and I guess the next stage is you did send me some Florida roselle, and uh, to try and grow them together and make hybrids. Um, but yeah, but this I think we planted this in when you gave your talk in March um, last year. I don't, I don't, I think I planted it soon after. So now it's December and the seeds aren't ready yet. So, so this is nine, ten months of um, of growing, and still, still not there yet. Well, one year we got it successfully from that farm in Florida, so I'm not sure. We just have to find the timing right, right, or and, or breed. But the, the issue is they had been eating the leaves off of what they could find, which was either from Africa or the Caribbean, and that was okay. But yeah. this is the leaf they want. It's it's different somehow. It's like not as tough. Uh -huh. It's the sourness they like. Chimbong means sour leaf. Um, so how to hybridize and select for the exact leaf type they want while also making it so earlier. we can grow it here yeah, earlier. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe in Florida, I don't. they probably don't use high tunnels, but, um, but you could maybe have it as a high tunnel crop for seed or something. Yeah, yeah. Pretty interesting. But yeah, and I don't know if, um, if I rooted this if it would um you know be still like with like apples when you graft them 
they're already in like the flowering stage. They don't have to go through a juvenile stage. So maybe if I rooted cuttings after these seeds are mature, maybe it will go instantly back into flower too. Yeah, they actually grew some as cuttings rooted in the soil at the farm where the Karen folks from Burma are in Philly, uh-huh. and they successfully got some seeds okay. from it. So that yeah. is a, a approach to, to head to try out more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. So what do you call this room? I, I call this the head house or the prep area. Yeah, yeah. And it smells very fragrant in here. <laughs> what's, what's happening in here? Well, so I have my CBD cannabis um, hanging. I have about 20 plants. Um, it's actually a hybrid I created of uh, an autoflower and a regular CBD hemp type. And uh, my students uh, jokingly call it OG Dr. C. And so uh, the OG for ocean grown is uh, like a, there's a lot of types that are called something OG. Um, yeah, and so I was doing a nutrient uh, comparison. The ones with the flags got a got a different nutrient mix than the ones without. I haven't really analyzed the data, but, um, but then I have a whole light cart full of clones, um, and this will go to um, my cannabis class, which I'll teach in the spring. We have a cannabis uh, uh, cultivation minor here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you break down what you said the cross was uh, auto- yeah, an auto flower. So I use auto tsunami, and then there's this variety. It's just called wife, and they're two different cultivars. And so auto flower is day length and sensitive. Um, and then uh, most cannabis is um, is like a lot of other tropical plants. You need the short days for it to flower. Mm-hmm. And so I made a hybrid between those two, and it's like intermediate in its day length sensitivity. And how long has this program been here? And and I guess people will be like, are they breeding weed? Like, how do you (laughs) define what's happening here? Yeah, yeah. Well, so mostly it's a growing class. Yeah, so we've had the program, I think this is the third year. Um, I had to get a state um, hemp license. I I can't grow THC because it's federally illegal. These have a trace amount. I'm allowed 0.3%, but um, which is nothing. When you go to like a dispensary, they're selling people want over 20%, you know? And so so we're talking less than 1%. My stuff has been like 10% CBD or so, which I guess you can get it up to 20. Yeah, so we go through the process of growing the plant from seed or clone. We talk about lights, we talk about media, fertilizer, pest control, um, nutrient deficiencies, um, wind harvest, um, you know, and then I talk about basic, plant function, you know, root absorption, um, photosynthesis, um, and uh, different wavelengths of light. Um, And then we also do talk about the history of the plant, where it came from, what are traditional uses, things like that. Other uses than flower, you know, fiber, uh, seed, um, uh, you know, concrete, hempcrete, uh, and, um, and things like that. So, can I ask you to do a nutshell version of where it came from and traditional uses, and then I would love to hear about how this might be used. Like, what kind of medicinal use does this strain have? Its origin appears to be the Tibetan plateau, um, and so this plant, um, you know, uh, has been in Asian cultures forever, and they, you know, use. I I don't. What is it called? Bang, I think, is one of the. I I don't I don't know a whole lot about their traditional uses, but they would make um, you know, they would 
make um, like in India, I think there's like a shake almost, like a drink. Uh, and then, yeah, definitely. But um, where it gets into like Western culture is the Scythians brought it. Um, seems to be associated with um, funeral rites in Western China. Then it shows up on the edge of the Greek world with the Scythians and they would uh, take the flower and put it on hot rocks and basically make a tent. It was part of like a, a, a funeral rite. You you know, you were supposed to to do this when somebody died. And, and that was like, um, you know, some of the earliest Western contact with it. And then, then you know, fiber's been used, you know, forever for rope, uh, essentially, you know, probably like the Mayflower, all the rigging and stuff was probably all hemp. And, and I guess the constitution is not on hemp. That, that I guess is a myth, but our nav any sort of naval um, traditional fleets, they all had um, hemp rigging, you know, probably even the Norse, the Vikings probably had some hemp rigging. Um, yeah. And then, you know, and the seeds are also eaten and, um, you know, used for oil and, and things like that. Actually, one commercial grower did did grow some of these this year. Um, uh, a sweet heel or DG AgTech in Ashford grew some of my stuff, and um, and they 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 liked it. It's borderline. The THC is like almost too high. It's like just under the limit, um, but it, it re resisted pests pretty well, which um, better than some some of their other lines. Um, but the CBD wasn't as high as some of their other things. Um, so yeah, it's it's a cross of two different CBD varieties. Um, there's also a lot of terpenes. What gives you you can smell it, and if you if you if were to like rub that a little bit, you'd get a big whiff of the terpenes, which are uh, a lot of people really like, and they have their own medicinal qualities um, besides the CBD. Um, and you know, the CBD is uh, you know for for calming, but does seem to have um, anti-addictive properties and and uh, and uh, anti-inflammatory and and um, you know just calming um, yeah uses. Cool. Well, thanks so much for talking to me, talking to us, talking to the listeners, and for like decades now of nerdy seed relationships. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for being a fellow seed nerd. It's a it's an honor to be interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much to Brian Connolly for sharing his stories and work with us. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. If you liked this episode, please share it and please let us know somehow, perhaps with a review in your podcast app or a message. Thank you also for helping our seed keeping and storytelling work by ordering seeds, t-shirts, and more from our website, trueloveseeds.com. And again, if you'd like to support our podcast for $1 or more a month, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. It feels weird not having Chris for that part. Let's see if we can get him on here just for that one. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future. Take care. Thank you.